When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Top of the table again and back to winning ways in the Champions League. So surely everything's looking rosy for City as the autumn really begins to get going. Oh no wait, up next is the annual defeat at Anfield. Perfect timing for the team in second place to kill any momentum Pep Guardiola's side had been building. Welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast where we'll be looking ahead to Sunday's showdown between the Premier League's top two and trying to work out how City can break the Merseyside curse. We'll be looking back over victories against Brighton and Hoffenheim asking just how bad refereeing decisions can get when it comes to City in Europe. We set Howard Hawking loose on that topic. Gary James is also on the show talking to us about his new book Manchester City Folklore and we'll squeeze in a few of your questions as well in Ask the Panel. I'm your host for this week, David Mooney, and joining me for this one we have City fan Paul Atherton. The means you okay? And uh, we've got journalist at One Football, Dan Burke, joining us all the way on uh, on Skype from Germany. How are you doing? Well, the wonders of modern technology, eh? I know. It's, uh, I'm very well, thanks, by the way, Paul. I realised that I, I completely ignored your question to introduce Good, good to know. I'm sure the listeners um, need to know that. Yeah, um, I just thought, you know, I, I need to go up and, and tie all the loose ends. Um, so then, I, I mean... Two games to, to look back on to start with, 2-0 over Brighton and 2-1 uh, over Hoffenheim. Um, first off, Dan, I want to I just want to get the reaction in Germany for, for the game in Hoffenheim. What, uh, what, what's the reaction been like there? If there's, I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's been any reaction at all, to be honest with you. Um, no, there hasn't really, to be honest. I mean, Hoffenheim aren't one of the, uh, the bigger clubs in Germany, so um, certainly none of the people that, that I um, work with are that interested in them. Although they, did, uh, they were taking the piss out of me a little bit when, when City went 1-0 down after 40 seconds or whatever it was. Um, but you know, I think when everyone around the world watches City nowadays, they're quite impressed um, with how they play. I don't think they uh, gave Hoffenheim much chance of, of beating us. Um, they were on a pretty bad run uh, before that game. I think it, they were quite surprised, if anything, that, that it was quite close. And I think a lot of people were expecting a three-four nil win for City. Did you? I mean, watching the game, did you find it? Uh, did, did you find it troubling that City went down, went one nil down so early and so easily? Um, ultimately, no, because we won the game. Um, it's always uh, a bit of a problem if you're going to concede sloppy goals like they did there. Um, but to come back and win 2-1 uh, in the end was fine, really. I-, I have no issue with it. I think it was a hard game. I think Hoffenheim played well. They were really up for it. Um, City had to really, really dig in and grind a result out in the end, and they did it. So job done, uh, move on to the next one. Um, but, but yeah, they- they've got to uh, tighten up the defence a little bit and, and certainly going into the game at the weekend, uh, not conceding another early goal like that. What uh, what impact has Raheem Sterling had this week, Paul? Because um, I mean, he's been one of the key. He was one of the key players for City last season. What 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 what's this week proved for him? I think it's proven how important he is to the team. I think he came back, you know, with not much preseason because of the World Cup, and he's just been started the season well. And the last two games in particular, I mean, when, you know, when he was through on goal against Hoffenheim, for example. I know he missed the one-on-one, but it was a good save. It wasn't a fluff finish as it typically is. But the balance he showed in the attack, it just shows how, how you know 
the variety he's got and his his overall intelligence is getting better and better. He's making passes, you know, the right timing of passes. Um, I think he's proven himself, you know, he's, he's an English player, so we need, you know, that towards, um, you know, the quota. And also just his actual flexibility, playing on the left, playing on the right, down the centre, up front, and just the, the threat he actually has. Have you? I mean, have you been surprised at how well he's played on the left? Because, well, I mean, you think back to when he joined and he was he was touted as a player that was would play on the left and cut inside. It never really worked for him. And, and Guardiola moved him over to the right and he was he was working fine. Back on the left a bit this season, he's looking good, isn't he? I think he is. I think... He's quite a moody player, so you know. I think it depends what sort of mood he's in. I don't think it matters too much if he's left or right. I think he prefers right because he's always got the option to go there. But when he plays on the left, he can cut in and, and you know get a shot off a lot easier. Um, and I think a lot of it you got to look into as well is who he's actually partnered with, say like left back or right back, and how much freedom he's got to go forward. I think that makes a big difference to his game. But I mean, it, it, it just shows how important he is to, to to us in all these big games now. I think he's one of the first players on on, on the team sheet in, in a big game just because of the, the fact that he can move him around and the fact that he gives that sort of counter-attacking threat. I mean, when we look at uh, another aspect of the attack, it's uh, it's two games, two goals for Aguero. You, I mean, he's proving that uh, that you can always rely on him, even if uh, we believe he's not been fully fit this week. Yeah, um, I was really surprised to hear that, actually, because he, he looks he's looked sharp all season. Um, he took the goal against Hoffenheim well. Um, his goal against Brighton was absolutely superb. You know, he, he, he started the, the move himself, took on a couple of players, laid it off to Sterling, who... We played it back to him excellently, and then the finish was really nice as well. And um, I think Guardiola was was wary of the fact that he wasn't 100% fit because as soon as he scored that second goal against Brighton, he came straight off. Um, but but he's he's been probably City's best player so far this season, Diego Aguero. Um, and long may it continue. I hope this uh, this injury problem is somebody can shake off quite quickly and, and keep going, keep scoring goals. You could see from the first game of the season how how just how fresh and you know I, I hadn't seen him like move that quickly. It's hard to describe, but when you you know the eye test. You know, when you actually—that's it's the best test. You know, you just look and you can just see he's looking a lot sharper than he than he has done previously, and you could see that he's he's moving a lot more freely. I know he said in the um in the Amazon documentary about that, and you you could see it on the pitch. So hopefully, he can shake off this uh this injury that he's got. But um, it's good to see. I, I agree. I agree with Danny. He has been our best player this season, and I think you know you don't. It's not fifty fifty, is it? Um, Jesus or is it him starting? It, it is. Aguero in big games now. It's funny how that's changed as well. If you know, like eighteen months ago or so, it was you could see Guardiola was really giving him that little bit of a rocket up the backside. And in, in fairness to Aguero, he has responded to it, hasn't he? Um, I mean, in, in terms of, of City's performances this season, Dan, before you mentioned about about City kind of struggling to to break down Hoffenheim, how, how much has this been a case of of City not hitting the heights of last season, or is it more that the opposition have just been defending really well? I don't. I mean, I think it's probably that they're just not quite hitting the heights. I, I think City have started the season quite slowly, um, haven't really, really clicked into gear properly yet, um, bar the odd game or two. Um, the Cardiff game was was quite good, but before that they were they were a little bit iffy. Um, I think against Brighton, um, it's not a big it's not a big problem the way they're playing really. Against Brighton, it was a bit of game management. You know, it's quite easy to forget that City have got quite a small squad. Um, Guardiola says that's how he likes it, so that he, he doesn't have to disappoint players. But you know, they've only got one defensive midfielder in Fernandinho, who's expected to play a lot of football. So I think with with games like Brighton, they're sort of conserving their energy a little bit. They know they've got enough about them to win the game. Um, and as soon as they went two 0 up in that game, it was 
it was game over and then it was just knocking the ball about until the final whistle really the Hoffenheim game was a little bit different in that they went a, a goal down early on and then had to come back into the game and I think the first half the first maybe hour of the game City weren't particularly brilliant and then um, that, that uh, substitution that, that Guardiola made did he put stones in, in midfield um, uh, and so it just sort of moved City up the pitch quite a little, a lot in that game and, and they really started to take control of the ball dominate the game and um, I think it, ultimately they really deserved to win the Hoffenheim game and, and would have won it a little bit earlier were it not for uh, a very dodgy referee decision that I'm sure we'll come on to Well I mean you've touched on two things I wanted to get onto a bit later on in the show there we'll start off with John Stones as a, as a defensive midfielder Paul you, how, how do you feel about this? Um, prefer when he comes on as a defensive midfielder rather than starting. Um, he did all right at Oxford. I mean, I, I granted it's Oxford, and <laughs> I, th- I think he is. A, I think he is a suitable option there. Um, on the ball, he is good. He makes the short passes. You know, he's, he actually progresses forward. Um, it's good to see that. I just wonder if he if he needs more time to learn where to move. If that makes sense, I think he does. It's a bit of a um, you know, the D- D- Mache- <laughs> it reminds me of Dima Chalice marauding around there. <laughs> sort of veterans performance. I'm, I'm not sure Stones will be that happy yeah. with that comparison, <laughs> you know, to be yeah. honest. With I, you. Think, I think he does need more time, but at the same time, it's a bit saddening that a club of our size needs to rely on a sort of centre-back to kind of fill in that role. I mean, it's testament to how good John Stones is, but I mean, surely there's someone in the academy that could, you know, do that role temporarily, potentially. Or, but this is, this is Guardiola, a man who is famed for moving players around and, and, and sorting them a new position. I mean, you look at someone like Fabian Delph, you'd have never have suggested he'd be a left-back, and then all of a sudden, actually, his, his best route into the team is, is as a left-back. Why not Stones? Why, why can't this work for him? It can do. I just think, in certain games, I mean, you wouldn't put him in, you know, a fast-paced game, because it just, it just wouldn't work, or, you know, a game where you play in... You know, a heavy midfield and, and the fact that you know they're going to be quite small and sort of technical players, you wouldn't do that because you just get passed around. I feel um, it's quite it's quite mobile though, but I just think you got to be quite a small competitive midfield. You know, like Gundogan and Fernandinho are both quite sort of uh, nimble. I just think you can't have like a big sort of brute in, in centre mid there. <laughs> Dan, you mentioned uh, refereeing decisions. Um, I, I know Howard's going to be talking about this a, a little bit later on, but I, I mean, let's be honest. Um, were you that surprised that City didn't get the rub of the green from the officials in the Champions League? Not at all, no. And I don't think there's some huge way for conspiracy against City or anything like that. I don't buy into that whatsoever. I just think the, the standard of refereeing in the Champions League is quite poor. I mean, that guy that they had the other night, Slovenian guy, who, um, with the greatest respect to Slovenian football, he's, he's not really used to refereeing games of that intensity. So how is allowed to just make the jump up to a, a Champions League game with, with two of Europe's top teams like that is um, is a mystery to me. And I just find, in general, the, the way that European referees um, don't allow the game to flow and they're constantly got the whistle in their mouth, I find it really frustrating. I find myself being a little bit extra sort of irritable during Champions League games because it just seems like the game never gets going. And, and City are a team that need the game to flow nicely. The, the, you know, if there's... Um, a tactic that can stop City it's to keep breaking the game up with little fouls and things like that and don't let them get into the stride so um, yeah it's really frustrating that that penalty decision was ridiculous um, that throw in that he pulled back from David Silva when he put Sane through on through on goal in the first half was I have no idea what was wrong with that I, well, I um, thought I thought he'd given a foul throw but then he didn't give it the other way so he, like, yeah. he couldn't have done he didn't it. give a free kick either did he no, no, no. So what did he actually give? Just he, they made him retake the throwing. But yeah. but you can take a throwing whenever you want. This exactly. Is that's, that's, that's why it's baffling. Even when he was trying to explain it to Pepe, you just see there's there's no explanation. And same with the penalty, the the, the foul on Sane. He just kind of ran towards Sane, and then ran ran away. Just didn't give anything. He didn't really make a decision either way. And it's just 
clearly he just doesn't know how to make those decisions and it's like the, the Sane one is, is frustrating as well because in that situation you, you, you have to ask the question why did Leroy Sane go down okay there's there's two possible answers there one he was clipped by the goalkeeper or two he's kicked the ball too far and he knows he's not getting there so he's, he's gone down to try and buy a penalty he's not he's not tripped over his own feet he's not you know mm. you know he's not slipped there's, there's it's one of those situations where it is either a yellow card for diving or it's a penalty so if he's not got yeah. the guts to give a penalty why is he not pulled the book out somewhere no. in the back of his head he's got to be thinking I'm not so sure about this that's what winds me up the most when the referees just don't make a decision at all like you can't do that surely you've got you've got to do something like you say you've got to book him for diving if it's a dive um, I mean even the goalkeeper Bauman knew that he'd given a penalty away there he didn't protest at all <laughs> he, did, he did that he of... did the innocent hands didn't he you know you, you, have, yeah. you have you have those sorts of you have you when players score against their old club they have uh, apologetic hands when they you know, you've got jazz hands he, he did the innocent hands you know it's it lift them up and, yeah, and just yeah, show I didn't yeah. touch him you almost sort of think that if he had like protested his innocence there that maybe the referee would have thought oh hang on yeah that was a penalty <laughs> but it all just added to the sort of confusion of the moment. I was watching the game in, in the office at work with the sound off and I just sort of turned away and thought we'd got a penalty. Um, 30 seconds later, I looked up and the game was still going on. I was like, what, what is going on here? That is one of the worst decisions I've seen for a long time, I think. It's just really, conf- it just, we're just talking about it in like a confused state here because it just doesn't make any sense. Like both decisions don't make sense. The, the, fa- the fast throwing, which wasn't a foul throw, don't understand it. it the throwing one was was daft in in the sense that he then ran over to Guardiola and explained what he'd given, and I just like I can't for the life of me understand what he would say to him no. because like what what do you say? Well, yeah, I just thought I, I thought I'd let Hoffenheim get back in and get set up before you you tried to counter them with a throwing that was perfectly legitimate. You know, it we doesn't make it any the, sense. Took it from the same spot as well, didn't he? So I mean, yeah, it's just daft. Um, just getting back to the game as well. Uh, Ilkay Gundogan went off um, with uh, what what I think was a hamstring injury. What uh, what impact will that have, Dan? Quite a big one, I think, because I think Gundogan has really started playing well in the past few weeks, um, particularly the Cardiff game. He was really good, and um, it's just one less option for Guardiola to have in midfield, really. Um, if it is a hamstring injury, it could be two, three weeks out, that couldn't it? So it could could could, could be a little bit of a problem. I don't think Delph is is fit at the moment, so um, uh, you might find that Zinchenko or, or maybe even Phil Foden gets gets a bit of, a few minutes in midfield in, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, it's a shame for Gundogan because. I've I've been a bit sceptical about him uh, last season and the start of this one, but it felt like he'd really started to hit his stride and uh, and it looks like he, he could be out for a little while now. It's almost like Dan read my mind there, Paul, because I was going to ask you if you first off if you were disappointed that Foden didn't get any more time against uh, against Brighton because he got two minutes at the end of the game, and if the op- if the injury offered an opportunity for him because I mean it, it, he's he's proving himself to be quite handy when he gets into the team. I think so. He, he plays a bit more advanced, doesn't he, than Gunnigan? I think. Um... I know against Cardiff, you know, Gunnigan was playing a lot more sort of free role, but I, th- I think obviously with with losing a cent- central midfield, I think he will play a bit more, and it is disappointing to get more time against Brighton, but, you know, he is going to get his minutes this, this season. We saw it against Oxford where he's absolutely, you know, <laughs> best player on the pitch. Um, so disappointing, but he, he will get his games, and I think this Gundogan, I'm not sure how they'll do it in terms of, because I think he's a bit more attacking, than uh, Gundogan is, but I'm, I'm sure Pep's got an idea of how he can use him, and that's why he w- ultimately he wanted to hold Foden back anyway for this sort of situation. Just on Foden, do you ha- do you think that we have to maybe just as fans take a step back and and not put too much pressure on Guardiola to play him, not put too much pressure on him when he's when he's on the pitch? If that makes sense, doesn't make a difference. I mean, the amount of pressure on Guardiola not to get rid of Hart, and he did it. I don't think he cares. I think if what he <laughs> thinks is right. Fair so, point, yeah. you know, I think if he, you know, 
there's more pressure on the fact that you know we've signed a player for X amount of million and they're not performing. That's that's higher pressure, I think, on him. Fair point. Right, well, let's move on. Manchester City have no history. That's a claim that fans have been trying to swat away since they started winning things in the Sheikh Mansour era. And it's completely wrong as well. Football historian Gary James is someone who's spent the last few years researching further into City folklore for his new book. I've been speaking to him to find out why he wanted to write it. I wanted to really get something out there that was about the DNA of the club. So many people have been talking about Manchester City as if it's always been either a failed club or it, this club that's just got rich, you know, and, and suddenly found success. So I wanted to actually get this, the DNA of a club out there, the stories that every blue should know. Um, and so whether it's about inflatable bananas in the 80s or whether, you know, it's about typical city or anything like that, I wanted to tell the story and try to make sure that people had a, an accessible way of really finding out what makes city special. Every football club is supposed to be special, but you know, if, if you're a City fan, over the last year or last few years, we've sort of been bombarded with negative stories about support, about money, about you know where were you and all this sort of stuff. And I, I wanted to sort of spell out what the truth is. It's it's an interesting one because it's it, it, it kind of covers parts of history, but it's not a linear kind of A to B. This happened and this happened. It, it, it's very much you can dip in and out at, at various points. Yeah, virtually all of my books before this have been sort of heavyweight histories where, you know, this one's got half a million words. So, you know, it, it can put people off. Um, and although there's a vast amount of material in there, people don't necessarily read it from cover to cover and don't necessarily um, remember some of the stuff that's in there. So I wanted something that was more like a like a stocking filler, like a, the sort of trivia type book that you, you get at Christmas um, off a you know, Father's Day or Mother's Day or, or birthdays or whatever. And I wanted something that would appeal to fans of every age. So the idea was that rather than making a chronological story from you know 1883 to present day, I wanted to make it feature-led. So there's a few pages on the 1980s, a few pages on the current decade, a few pages on attendances, on Europe, on you know on managers, on players, the greatest captains, that sort of thing. And so if you're anyone really, no matter what age, no matter what interest, you can pick up a book, open it on any page and hopefully you'll go, oh, I didn't quite realise that or, or it'd be a nice reminder of something. I did not. I definitely didn't want it to be something that was just a, a standard history. I wanted it to be colourful, I wanted it to be lively and I wanted it to be, well, something that you use in the pub to win arguments basically. What? I mean, what little nuggets have... I mean, you, you find out something new every time you do a new project like this. What, what little nuggets have you found out this time around? Well, I suppose the biggest one, really, is that there's an article in there that I've, I've put together which is talking about the founder of Manchester City. There's been... Well, of St Mark's Church, actually. There's been a lot of rubbish written in the last decade, really, talking about this person, that person. And, and a lot of it is based on guesswork. A lot of it is based on um, rumours... Even in some cases, something's just been totally made up. Um, and so, I uh, about 18 months ago, I spent a lot of time trying to get to grips with who the person was who came up with creating a, a soccer team uh, at St Mark's. And I, it was a long story, but I did find an interview. Well, I found a couple of interviews, but one particular, which was an interview with one of the men who was present at the first game in 1880 and he talked about the person who he said had 
come up with the idea of, of creating a football club. I'm not going to give the game away now. It's in the book. It's virtually the last thing in the book. Um, but this was gold dust to me. I mean, it, it was one of those things. I almost didn't find it because the newspaper is badly damaged. It's in an archive that is difficult to access. Um, and I was told, basically, I had until about 7 o'clock to read this and then it was going to be put in the vault forevermore. So I took some photographs of it, so I've got the evidence. Um, and I just couldn't believe it because he also talks about where the first pitch was, which is something else that's been disputed. Um, and I was particularly pleased with this because it actually backed up one of my theories, so I've, I've, I'm convinced I was on the right track a few years back. Um, but yeah, you know, it wasn't Anna Connell, it wasn't any of that rubbish that's been spouted. It, it's, it's there and it's, it's quite clear who did it. And you mentioned being in the, looking through the archives and that sort of stuff. You know, it's, it's very easy these days to get on the internet, just Google the odd facts here and there, but you know, the, the internet doesn't always have all the answers. How much work has gone into to actually digging through old newspapers and that sort of thing? Oh, it's, it's, it's difficult because I've been doing it now since 1987. 80, I started going through newspaper archives, doing microfilm at Manchester Library. Um, going to the archives all over the country it's actually got easier now because there's a lot of digital newspaper sources but even then the digital sources are only a selection you know first of all there's a selection of the newspapers that have been saved then there's a selection of the newspapers that somebody somewhere has decided to to um, digitise so for example none of the football newspapers that were, were produced in Manchester have been digitised you know the, the pink the chronicle they've not been digitised at all um, so it's still important to get into these archives and to get these newspapers out there some newspapers were never microfilmed so you know it's, it, it can be tough but I've for, uh, over the years I've spent hours and hours days years um, and I'm still doing it because there's so many newspapers you know there are some newspapers I've got on a list I need to go through from cover to cover because occasionally you can find something on page seven. You know, the sport might be on page 20 and on page seven is, is something that is a clue uh, and sometimes it is nothing more than a clue. And with this, this story about um, St Mark's first team, I found this because as I'm going through this newspaper, I found a, a particular article called Familiar Faces and one of the stories was about a guy who founded Broughton Rangers rugby team and then the week after, there was one about a guy who was there at Newton Heath when they first played football. And so I also have Manchester United's birth, which is different from what Manchester United believes. So at some point, I'm going to publish that as well. When it comes to the, 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 the actual city folklore, is there anything out there that, that is quite popular belief, but is actually just wrong? Well, yeah, I mean, there's the, found, the, the founder's story. Um, there's, there's, yeah, there's been quite a few things over the years. You know, people will talk to me about um, certain things like, uh, well, it's not really wrong, but it's not quite accurate. Bert Troutman breaking his neck. Had he actually completely broken his neck, he would probably have died. And if you go back and look at the actual uh, medical reports and that, it's not a neck break as such. However... It could have killed him, and it was serious, but, you know, the term neck break is, is important. Um, one of the things that I spend a bit of time talking about in the book is typical city. A lot of people hate the phrase typical city. I know the club does. But what I try to spell out in this book is that typical city has two sides to it. Yes, there is the art of, you know, making the easy seem difficult. But there's also the other side, which is probably more popular, is that when all is lost... 
City pulls something out of the bag, and that for me is typical City. So you know you can go for history, and you can look at it. You know the Aguero moment uh, was typical City winning the title in such a fashion. Um, loads of other stuff over the years. The five-one derby against United in 1989. You know Manchester United had spent more on their squad than had ever been spent before. City had only just been promoted. They suddenly play Manchester United and beat them not just by one nil and a lucky goal but 5-1 absolutely trash them and that's typical City so you know I, I spent a bit of time talking about some of these positive typical City, typical City moments and I would love I'm going to sound like Kevin Keegan now but I would love it if next time City win the league or the FA Cup or whatever City produce a range of t-shirts that just you know say league champions typical City or FA Cup winners typical City or, or Champions League or whatever it may be because I think that's that's more like it. I think we, we have the negatives, but we also have the positives. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Gary James speaking to me about his new book, Manchester City Folklore. If you'd like a copy, it's available on Amazon or Waterstones and uh, you can head over to conquereditions.co.uk as well. Now then, uh, moving on, and it's time to look ahead to the game with Liverpool on Sunday. Uh, we do this from time to time on the Blue Moon podcast. We're joined by Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Wrap. Neil, hello, how are you doing? I am very well indeed and a pleasure to be on. Um, just, I mean, we'll start with you on this one because City fans generally hate going to Anfield because of City's record there. Um, what, uh, what, what's the feeling for Liverpool fans? I think we feel confident when City come, but I think there's also a real awareness and I'd like to think a fair bit of respect uh, from Liverpool supporters to what City achieved last season. You know, this is a serious football team. You don't get 100 points by accident. And I think the way in which the season ended for City, and I mean that again with the greatest respect, that's some big opportunities were missed, actually took the shine off what I think is the greatest side ever to play Premier League football. So, you know, I think that there can be a bullishness about Liverpool and everyone's really looking forward to the game, really looking forward to the kick-off time. It'll be dark when it kicks off and everyone wants a bit of that. You know what I mean? I think there's a real edge about it. That's a good thing, I'd say. Uh, but on the flip side is everybody's well aware of the fact that Manchester City are very, very, very good at football. I mean, when we, when Paul, when, when we discuss going to Anfield, it, it's what it's the game that City fans pretty much write off every year, isn't it? I think so. I mean, the, the derby, anyone coming on the day, but I think Liverpool just the fix the atmosphere adds a lot when you go to a lot of away games. You never seem to get that sort of atmosphere, but you know, Anfield is it is really it's quite a hostile atmosphere. I think more, um, so, more so for City, do you think? I think so, because um, obviously United haven't been as competitive recently as Liverpool have been competing us, especially with you know the the Gerard slip year. Um, We've been kind of going toe-to-toe for a couple of titles now. Um, and I think Liverpool, just it's their style of play is literally like the worst sort of nightmare for the, city, the way City play. And it's just the question that Pep hasn't quite answered yet. Dan, do you, I mean, when you consider this one, I mean, six defeats in a row at Anfield, one win in 31 visits. The stats don't make pleasant reading, really, do they? No, not at all. It's an absolute uh, horror show for us every time we go there. I mean, uh, last season went there in January, um, got beat 4-3, but City were well beaten that day, weren't they? The, the scoreline flattered them in the end. And I don't know what it is. I, I think, you know, Paul's right. It is something to do with the atmosphere. But I think this uh, this City team is quite easily rattled sometimes. And, you know, despite what a good football team they are. And when they go to Anfield, the crowd really get behind the home side and City don't like it. And more often than not, we concede an early goal. It's often a long-range stunner from... You know, a Liverpool player who's not used to scoring goals like that as well. So, yeah, we, we seem to have a lot of bad luck there mixed mixed in with um, just not really going there in the right frame of mind and going there to, 
to play football and stamp our authority on the game, unfortunately. One of those that did a lot of damage to City last season, Neil, was Mo Salah. Um, looking in from the outside, it feels like his form's not quite been at the heights it was last year. What, how do you guys feel about him at the moment? I think the first thing I'd say is that around this time last season, people weren't talking about him the way they're talking about him now. And then that's an important thing to say and to point out, that this is, this is, you know, it can be something where the footballer himself is just taking a little bit of time to get into his season. That happens. It's a thing that happens to footballers. It's a good players as well as, uh, as, as well as mediocre ones. But he is a little bit out of sorts. I think one of the things that's happened to Mo is that I think that firstly Liverpool haven't currently got someone who's breaking from midfield. And acting as, a, acting as a fourth threat on a regular basis. Keita hasn't quite settled into that role yet. We're missing Oxlade-Chamberlain. Uh, Lallana has not, uh, not been fit so far this season. And it's optimistic to expect him to be. And Coutinho and Emre Chan are both gone. So I think that you know I think that Liverpool at the minute you know every every picture of Mo Salah has got like three defenders around him at all times. But I think something else has happened as well. When Mo came alive last year, there wasn't a lot of time for people to plan for what he does and what he does well. There wasn't a lot of time for you know analysts to go through the tapes and look at Liverpool and work out how to stop him. You're in the middle of a season. Whereas now I think everyone's had the summer. Everyone's been able to study the videos. Everyone's been able to go away and have a think about it. So I think that he's being stopped better. I think that side of defending against him better. I think sides understand his strengths better. So I think that it is going to take a little bit of time for him to adjust to that and for Liverpool as a whole to adjust to that. And I think that that could, you know, at any point that could just click. The front three could just click. I think that the weekend's game's a good opportunity for them to do it. But simultaneously, we can keep saying, well, he may just click. But if they don't click, what do we do then? Well, I was going to say, how how do you think Klopp will approach this one? Because, I mean, Guardiola, I feel like his, his hands are tied a little bit with this one. You know, I mean, we were talking in the week about, about the fact that he's only got Fernandinho really as a central midfielder. Um, d- does Klopp have, have different options that he could maybe surprise Guardiola with? I, there's the, I do wonder if Klopp might... Klopp's essentially quite a conservative manager, and I think that that's... That's something which which doesn't really go with a lot of the, 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 the persona of Klopp and also the football his teams play. So what I mean by that is I think Klopp tends to have his plans and he tends to stick to them. I think there'll be a there'll be a, a surprise team sheet written at some point by Jurgen Klopp across the next two or three days. I just don't know if that surprise team sheet will be the one that's handed in. So he could, for instance, decide to play one of the current from three deeper. Uh, and start Sturridge or Shaqiri. He could start Shaqiri in the midfield three if he feels he wants to break someone breaking from midfield. He could do that, um, but he, it looks unlikely he can play Naby Keita. Oxley Chamberlain's out, and there's no Lallana, as I said earlier on, and I don't see Fabinho starting. So I think ultimately Liverpool's side would be the side that you'd guess right now, that your listeners would guess right now. The other thing he might do is he might put Salah through the middle. Uh, he might have a little think about that. He might just start him through the middle and see about, you know, wrecking at any plans that City might have had to try to squeeze him on one side or on the other. But ultimately, as I say, I think Klopp will will be saying to his boys, you are my boys, you know what to do, you've done this before, go and do it again. I think that's probably where he ends up. But I suspect he might go on a little bit of a journey to end up there. Dan, what do you think Guardiola does to, to, to kind of combat that? Because, I mean, we saw what he did in the Champions League to try and uh, try and stop Liverpool and put Gundogan out on the right, and it just didn't work, did it? No. Um, I mean, I think City set, have got a set-up, you know, the normal way, really. But the, the key for me is going to be the left-back position. Um, I'm really hoping that Mendy is going to be fit for this game because I think we're going to need him. Um, you know, we really struggled in the, the Champions League game last season. I'm Eric Laporte, played left-back. He played left-back against uh, Hoffenheim the other night and he wasn't very comfortable there at all. 
Um, so I, I really hope that doesn't happen. I don't have a lot of faith in Zinchenko playing there either. So that will be the key area of the pitch for me where, where the game could be won and lost. If, if City can have Mendy, then I'd be a lot more confident about the chances. But without him, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure really. Paul, does Raheem Sterling play? I think he does. I think um, the form he's he's got going into this game. There's a lot of pressure on him to perform, but I mean, I think he'll actually rise to that. Well, you, I mean, you, th- you mentioned the atmosphere before, though, and Liverpool. I mean, if there's we talk every week about Sterling being booed. If there's one club that is allowed to boo him, it's Liverpool, isn't it? So I think I think he'll be more motivated now, and I think he's a lot more confident. Just the way he's come back this this season, um, looks like he's stepping up another level every year, and I, I think he'll um, once he kind of gets a good performance there, they'll all come and I think he wants it more than anyone. I think he's probably even spoken to Pep saying, you know, don't leave me out just because I've played badly. I think he'll really want this, want, want to perform well. And I think just because his form and, and the width he gives us, I, I I think he will play. It has to be Sterling Sane Aguero, doesn't it? I think so, yeah. So if Mendy's fit, perhaps Sane will, will drop out. But I think if, um, if we're playing Laporte or Dell, for example, I think, or Zinchenko, it will be um, Sane playing left. So you'd have... Sané and Sterling, so you've got the natural width there. Dan, what effect do you think last season's games will have on this one? You know, the um, the law of averages dictates that City have got to get a result there at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, said that, I said last season's games, not the last 31 years, mate. I mean, oh, yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. Um, I mean, I just, I just like, like I said earlier, that, that early goal always seems to be the problem for City, and I just hope they can keep it tight and maybe even nick the first goal themselves. Who knows? I, I can't remember the last time we took the lead at Anfield in the game, never mind one there, so... Um, that could be, you know, something that they've really got to work on. Just keeping it tight first twenty minutes. Don't fall behind. Certainly, don't fall three nil behind like they did in the Champions League last season. Um, you know, if they can get through the game, get through the first half without conceding any goals, then it's anyone's game after that, isn't it? Really, Neil? Are you? I mean, Dan was there talking about, um, you know, the law of averages. Does that give you an added boost? Do you feel? Do you feel going into the game, you get that added boost from the fact that last season you did beat City three times. City might have gone on to get 100 points, break all these records, but Liverpool beat them three times. I think the added boost comes from, I don't know how City keep it tight. And what I mean by that isn't to insult City's defensive capabilities. What I mean is the way City defend brilliantly is by keeping the ball and killing the game and taking some time out of the game. And I think that if City try to do that, try to play quite conservative football, but with the ball, then I think that suits Liverpool. That suits the idea that at some point Liverpool nick it and they go. So the other option to do is to cede possession to Liverpool and, and to, 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 to play counter-attack and, and, and be quite re- reactive. But that goes against practically everything Pep Guardiola believes in. And I think it's important to say that it's hard for these managers to go against their principles. I think you can do it. You can do it for a final. You can do it for you know you can do it for for a big occasion. You can do it in an injury crisis, but I think it's quite difficult for a football manager to spend his summer training as footballers a certain way to go through every single game and say this is what you should do, this is what we believe, and this is what we're about, and then say click the fingers and go. But this game, lads, we do the absolute opposite. And I think that that's something which I don't think Pep Guardiola would ever do. And that's why when you talk about the mesh of styles, maybe suiting Liverpool, what I think is hard for City is to set up and set out to play away, which keeps the game away from Liverpool. And I think that that's the current issue that Manchester City have got. It's not that these players at some core level couldn't do all of that, but it's that in order to do that, it means going back on so much of what makes Manchester City special. And that's the vulnerability. And so often in football, it'll be the same for us. It's the same for us in many a game. It was the same for us, arguably, against Napoli. You know, at times, your greatest strength can become your greatest weakness. And I think that this is this is one of those instances. But that doesn't mean for a second, you know, you're... Um, quite right to say well if City score first I, you know, I think that's absolutely massive you know if, 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 if Bernardo Silva picks one up from 25 yards and puts the top corner after 10 minutes and it's 1-0 Manchester City 
then you know all bets are off. The game becomes a completely different game of football. And Manchester City haven't got one player capable of doing that. They've got six. Neil, I wanted to ask you about Alisson as well because City fans last season saw what what impact having somebody like Edison in the team could do. What what's Alisson done for Liverpool this year? He's made some terrific saves here. I mean, he's, he's unfortunate. He's probably, there's only three Liverpool players unfortunate to end up on the losing side against Napoli, but he's one of them. He's made some terrific stops. Um, you know, I thought he was excellent against Chelsea uh, in the away game that we had recently where, you know, we deserved a point from that game. If anything, I would argue both teams deserved to win. But, but the reality was that Alisson started to make two or three really good saves to keep us in that game at 1-0. Uh, and he made them, and that's that's the impact that he's had. You know, these are saves, these are stops. These, this is charging out a goal that our previous goalkeepers, Carrius, Mignolet, they wouldn't have made them. They just would not have made them. And so I think that the, you know, I think he's had a hugely positive impact. But that doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean he can't be beaten. He was beaten, you know, for uh, against Napoli there. Uh, Hazard beat him uh, the weekend. You know, he's not he's not impregnable. Far from it. But he's a very, very, very good goalkeeper indeed. I think a lot of the reason that we've really struggled has been the, the style of play, but also this year we're playing a much better Liverpool side. I mean, a lot of it was carried in form and the front three was unstoppable. They've improved in all the areas. I mean, the defence was particularly suspect and now they seem to kind of be addressing that. that. The defence last season was suspect, but City, for, for two of the games, couldn't really get near them. They, they couldn't know and that's that's the that's the problem. Even when we were playing attacking side, we just couldn't seem to break them down. Whether it's width, whether it is possession, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'm sure Pep's probably been up start of the season he's probably looking at this game already and I think this is oddly actually I think this is probably the game where we're probably not favourites I think to win I think people probably would expect Liverpool to win this I'm not seeing the the bookie odds I'm sure you'll tell us later but (laughs) I I think Anfield City away I think people would be more more, uh, leaning towards Liverpool in this one especially if they get an early goal well I was going to say as well I mean Dan when you look at at, at the, the team sheet for Liverpool Saleh Mane, Mane Firmino, how much does that worry you as a City fan when you look at City's defence and how how they're likely to set up? A lot because the the, the you know I'm not sure there's a better front three in the world than, than that three. Um, each player can is, is capable of scoring at least one goal every single game. Um, the interchange superbly. I think Firmino is a great player. Mane can pop one in the top corner nice and easily. Um, Salah, you know, we talked about the. He's not in great form. If he's going to hit form at any time, I could imagine it being against City. You know, <laughs> the, the look we have with these kind of things. So they they worry me massively. I mean, City are, are a good defensive side when they want to be as well. Um, but the, these guys can cause you a lot of trouble, and I, I will be amazed if City keep a clean sheet in this game. It'll be uh, be quite the quite the uh, quite the spectacle if they do. Uh, one final question on the on the front three, Neil. Well, I, I've asked Dan there about about your front three. What do you make of City's front three? How do you react to them? I think they're the absolute business, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I, I can't talk highly enough of Raheem Sterling. I honestly can't. Um, I think he's I think he's just about, when he came through from, the, from his first game, he looked to me to be the most intelligent young prospect I've ever seen play for Liverpool. I think his football brain is second to none. I think the rate at which he develops and learns is, is just incredible, to be honest with you. And, I, you know, as I say, I can't speak highly enough of him. Um, Sané, I think he's, he's blistering when he gets going. I felt last season when he came up against Alexander-Arnold, I thought Alexander-Arnold had his 10 out of 10 game. Uh, but I thought Sané had his 9 out of 10. But I didn't like the idea that he snuck, that he kept Sané quiet. I was petrified of Sané all game. And I think that at times what we always end up doing is in order to say that our players are good, I think all football supporters do this, you end up trying to act like the, the oppositions were poor. Sané was not poor. Uh, it was just that Alexander-Arnold was 1% better on the day. So, you know, that could go the other way this time out. Sané's a really good, exciting prospect. 
And Aguero's runs across the line, his anticipation in the box is terrific. The one question mark on Aguero is the extent to which he allows City to have an outlet at times. You know, I think he's, I think he's, he's brilliant at sniffing it out. I think he's brilliant at pulling wide. But I think that's less important when you've got Sané and Sterling to pull wide and get on it. I think City could at times maybe do with a. a do with a more of a forward who's able to drop a little bit deeper and then and then look to bring people into play. And I think, you know, I think for all his astonishing goal scoring prowess, I think that at times he just falls just a tiny little bit short there of where the ideal would be. He's an exceptional footballer, a truly great goal scorer, arguably one of the Premier League's most underrated players by this stage of his career. So no, I think that City's front three is terrific, but I think Liverpool's brings its own magic. And I think that Liverpool's feels more capable of doing the all-round thing or someone banging it in from 40 yards or someone doing something that's just a bit off the hook. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is I'm going to keep saying it, it would not surprise me, honestly, if, if from nowhere Sadio Mane starts centre midfield or something like that, that Klopp throws a curveball in because I think he will want someone running from deep. I think he will want someone carrying the ball through the middle of the pitch. So, so, so Mane might be a little bit deeper than the front three or it might be that, that Firmino and Salah do a lot of work high up the pitch and Mane fills in those little half spaces a bit more. That's what I think may well happen. But as I say, I've got, I, I just think ultimately Klopp will end up being small C conservative about this game. Right, so we've come to that point in the show where uh, I ask you all to put your necks on the line with this one. So winners are like buses on the charity bet this season, none in the first few weeks and then two in a row. So congrats to Nick Unsworth, who correctly said it had finished 2-1 in Hoffenheim last week. And that means we've raised £230 for the Christia Cancer Hospital in Manchester so far this season. William Hill has given each panellist a £10 correct score single bet on their predictions and it's Liverpool up next. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll say, uh, Dan, let's, uh, let's have your prediction first. What are you going for? <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid I just have absolutely no reason to be confident going into this game anymore. The record speaks for itself. Um, I think there's going to be goals in this game, but I think City are going to uh, end up on the losing side. I think it's going to be 3-2 Liverpool. 3-2 Liverpool, you traitor, is 20-1, uh, <laughs> to 1, which would be 200 quid for the, uh, for the pot. Uh, Paul, what are you having? I'm going to go 3-2 City. 3-2 City. Reverse of what Dan's chosen. Yeah, I, I don't know where you got this confidence from, but I, I mean, if you're right, it's 22-1, to 1, so it'll be uh, two, 220 quid in the pot. And uh, because, I mean, I've won one this season already, but I'm generally quite rubbish at it, so I'm going to give mine over to Neil this week. Neil, what are you having? I'm going to go 4-2 Liverpool. 4-2 Liverpool. In, in a way, I kind of hope you're right with this one, because if City are going to lose, then you know they may as well lose and win us some money. And it's 45-1, to 1, so 450 quid would would, uh, would go into the pot for that one. Uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more information about responsible gambling, visit begambleaware.org. Neil, thank you very much for, for joining us. I would say best of luck for, for Sunday, but I honestly don't mean it. So, you know... <laughs> Oh, listen, it'll be a really good game of football. Let's just say that to each other. Now, as we touched on earlier, City have had some questionable decisions in the Champions League of late. Here's Howard Hawkins to get under the skin of European officiating. I put a spell on you. It's a conspiracy, I tell you. A real one, not like the ones about jet fuel, melting beams and flags on the moon. No, Manchester City, the best team in the land and all the world, will never win Europe's Premier Club competition because, wait for it, referees have got it in for us. The proof is there for all to see. The non-penalty for Sane versus Hoffenheim, the spate of decisions against Liverpool in the Champions League last season and a spate of ridiculous calls over years of the competition. Still, it's not as bad as some of the decisions made in Premier League matches. 
Those decisions would require a show of their own. They're leg breakers of the weapon of choice, even family guy Harry Kane getting in on the axe last season. But anyway, the theme in the Champions League is quite simple and tends to revolve around a total inability to give City blatant penalties. David Silver in Munich and Micah Richards the same game. Then there's a Subasic foul and Aguero ignored in the 5-3 victory against Monaco. Now naturally the visitors got a penalty of their own and naturally Aguero got a yellow card. Sometimes the officiating is so bad that even Kevin De Bruyne has to be dragged away from match officials at half-time. At least City beat Napoli that night. Take note, Liverpool. Even Manuel Pellegrini, a man who would remain straight-laced if his lottery numbers came up, once called a Swedish referee unfit to officiate and suggested a bias towards Barcelona. There's a last gasp shirt pull on Balotelli versus Ajax that was not rewarded with a penalty. And who can forget that time that Sami Umtiti stepped on Raheem Sterling's foot? The result? Well, a yellow card for diving, naturally. And occasionally it works either way, as seen by the red card and penalty when Messi was fouled outside the box at the Etihad, or the magnificently inept penalty to allow CSK Moscow to draw level late on in their supposedly empty stadium. I'll have forgotten a dozen more, no doubt, but you get the idea. Now, of course, any team over an eight-year period can catalogue decisions that have gone against their team in a cup competition, but it's a simple fact that penalty appeals are generally waved away when it involves City, as if we have less right to them. This in a competition where a player has to fall to the ground to get a free kick, it seems. I don't think we can use it as an excuse for our apathy for the competition. But you know, after the latest non-penalty decision this week, I truly did stop caring temporarily about the result. I'd simply had enough. I sat there laughing at the madness of it all. Which other team would have a player taken out by a goalkeeper and have play waved on? Where was the yellow card for Sane if it was not a foul? Why was City stopped from taking a quick throw in when in an attacking part of the pitch? Why did Hoffenheim get every single decision in that first half? I have no logical answers. Now Liverpool deserved to get to the Champions League final last season. Their football merited it. But they got breaks. Despite all City's shortcomings, VAR or just competent match officiating would have led to a close outcome in that quarter-final. Hey, Robertson was even allowed to slide through Sterling at one point, and even the commentators couldn't be arsed kicking up a fuss about it. In fact, it was never mentioned again. Now imagine that happening either way round. Imagine Sane's goal being disallowed for Liverpool, not us. Imagine us scoring an offside goal. Then Liverpool wrongly having one ruled out in the second half. Judging by their reaction to correct a red card for Mane last season, I can only assume there'd be a week's mourning on Merseyside and questions asked in the Commons. But until City start getting decisions their way, we'll struggle to make an impact in the competition, especially at a time when there is no outstanding team that can rise above the rest. Saying that we're good enough to win it irrelevant of bad decisions just doesn't wash, I'm afraid. We're not that good that we can win despite refereeing incompetency. It matters, and no team can win without having a referee do their job. God knows Real Madrid have had enough decisions go their way in the past few years and beyond. Cup competitions often rest on very fine lines, and City could deal with a few breaks at crucial times. Thankfully, not even referee Demir Scamina could find a reason to disallow David Silva's winner in Germany. After a run of City defeats, he finally got to officiate a City victory. I bet it was made up about that. So why did this happen on a regular basis? I don't believe in conspiracy theories, and I cannot believe that there's a campaign to deny the likes of City and PSG, the cocky upstarts with no history and oil money. 
I do believe in corruption though, because it's stating the obvious that UEFA is riddled with it, and I believe in bias. Referees just seem to take a dislike to Little Old City. Maybe they just loved the anthem so much they thought they'd teach us all a lesson. Institutionalised bias, I think you'd call it. Still, nothing we can do about it. Complaining Pep gets another ban. Ask for clarification from the Referees Association or UEFA and we no doubt get fobbed off. City are new money and it seems that that hasn't gone down well. Like Trevor across the road with his shiny new jag. Hardly reason to key the car though. The truth is often the most boring now. Man did land on the moon. It would have taken more effort to fake it, truth be told. And all theories against the landing can be debunked in minutes. Likewise, the reason City don't get decisions might just be that referees are sometimes crap and we're not getting the calls. I'm not convinced myself, but until I connect hidden symbols and find evidence of an Illuminati leaking Bezik and Michelle Platini, it's all I've got, I'm afraid. We might need a terribly written book by Dan Brown to solve this particular mystery. Or we could just blame David Gill as per usual. If he had his way, we'd just automatically hand over the Champions League trophy to United every season without having the inconvenience of actual games. Of course, soon the great saviour will arrive. VAR is inevitable, at home and abroad, and then everything will be sweetness and light. It will take a catastrophic power cut, or such like, for cities to be denied their justice. Knowing our luck, it will somehow work against us. Clear errors, it is generally used for, so expect the definition of that to be reinterpreted before its widespread introduction. Or maybe the VAR and his team will consist of Kenny Dalglish, John Aldridge, Steve McManaman and the cast of Bread. But surely at last we will see results based on merit. VAR is not perfect. It might reward the armchair fan, it might remove emotion from the game. But if I've learnt one thing from following Manchester City in the past 10 years, it's that it should benefit my club more than any other. This is Nader Manuha, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Howard Hawking talking about refereeing in the Champions League. Now then, uh, before we move on, uh, we were talking a few minutes ago about uh, about how we're not that confident about City going to Anfield. We put it up on uh, on Twitter just before we came on air about uh, basically asking the question to you guys, will Will City win at Anfield and then uh, then tell us why you think that. Um, there's been 94 votes in the poll, which, you know, it's not a, not a huge sample, I, I, I guess, but uh, 52% say yes, City will win. Um, does that does that change your confidence any, Paul? No. <laughs> Dan? I mean, absolutely not, no. Right, okay. So, I mean... Well, Dan and I cancelled each other out based on the scores we predicted, so <laughs> it means you got the tying vote, I think. Well, yeah, but you know me, Mr Pessimism. I'm not... Uh, I'm, I'm, there's no win at Anfield for City in the next 30 years, so I don't see how, how that can change. I mean, just... I mean, let's see if we can inject a little bit of positivity. I mean, Catherine uh, tweeted us to say, I feel it in my bones this time. Raphael says, Liverpool's not playing well. I feel this season will start winning in an ugly fashion. This will be the first one. Uh, David says it's our time. Uh, Alex, I mean, is, is very confident. Sterling Hattrick with an Adebayor-style celebration. Don't know why would be so sweet. Uh, Matthew says got to happen one day. You know, it's Dave again says City will win. Sterling will score. Milner will hack at our lads. Does, I mean, does none of this give you any confidence whatsoever that, that actually we're in the wrong? 
I used to think it was going to happen one day, but I just I just stopped believing at one point. There's just no point getting myself in that emotional state anymore, I don't think. I'm just resigned to the fact that we're going to lose there, and hopefully I'm proved wrong on this occasion, but I, I just don't see it, to be honest with you. Paul, 52% is a, is a good number when it comes to, to things in Britain. We, if, if there's any percentage that says, yes, we should do something, it's 52%. So, uh, yeah. is that not, not, not swing it for you? No, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I think, I think we're going to, I think we're going to win. So stay positive. So you're, you're actually in the 52%. I'm in 52%. Yeah. In, in this, in this case, I'm in the 52%. Yes. <laughs> Can I we see. do another poll? Uh, yeah, let's, I mean, I, sh- I think we should run it again. Yeah, let's just mean resigned yet. Yeah. <laughs> let's run it again. Right. Uh, time for Ask the Panel, the bit where you send your questions in for these guys. Uh, email us bluemoonpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at bluemoonpodcast. Get us on the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Jim Holden's been in touch first off to say City might be top of the league, but they look more vulnerable than last season. How much of that is down to the number of players that they sent to the World Cup? Yeah, I think it's um, it's certainly a factor. Um, for, for quite a lot of teams in the Premier League, actually, um, Liverpool are, are perhaps a team that are benefiting from it the, the opposite way because you know quite a lot of um, some of their key players didn't go to the World Cup this summer, um, and they've they've really had the benefit of a full pre-season and, and started the season really well. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think City have started the season a little bit slowly um, compared to last year, but then they started last season fairly slowly as well, um, and it took a little bit of bit of time to get going. But um, I think. Certainly, players like Fernandinho, it could have an effect for them. They've, they've just, you know, the guy's 33 years old and he's been playing non stop football for about 24 months now. So, um, I really think someone like that would have benefited from from a little bit of a rest over the summer and, and they're just not going to get one now. Um, but I think it's just one of those things that is going to take a little bit of time for them to blow the cobwebs of the summer away. Um, and, and hopefully, they're, they're getting towards that stage now where they're in the zone and, and they're really playing well again. Paul, let's flip it on its head, though, because, I mean, ultimately, yeah, City sent 16 players to the World Cup and they've, they have looked a bit tired in recent weeks. But, I mean, it might, might be on goal difference, but they are top of the league. I don't think there's any aspect of tiredness just yet that, that I've seen. I think it's just kind of getting the players back and a couple of new players to, to bed in, people coming back at different times. I think it's still still phasing in. And then, obviously, the De Bruyne injuries throw, throwing things off a bit, Mendy being injured, but Delft being injured. We've had quite a lot of injuries popping up that we've had to deal with. Um, so... It could be an aspect in terms of the, just the the squad coming back at different times, but I think it'll, I think it'll like even itself out. I mean, the, the other side of it as as well that that kind of I mean the tiredness thing, um, it, it does it feels like we like we've said a few times on on tonight's show it, it does feel like like City haven't really got going at times. Is that something actually that we'll see after Christmas? Maybe when you know when when everybody's back and you know, like De Bruyne's only a couple of weeks away and just just when everybody's kind of getting back into the swing of things. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, it is just they're going to start. It just becomes sort of muscle memory after a little bit, doesn't it? And they, they really start um, start playing well. But I think perhaps the biggest factor to explain um, City's sort of mini malaise, which is something that is quite easy to forget, is that Kevin De Bruyne's been injured for the whole season so far. He's played 30 minutes of football for City this season. He was our key player last season. We've coped remarkably well without him when you think about it. Um, so hopefully when he comes back, it won't take him that long to to, to get back into the swing of things and we'll, we'll really start looking like the team that, that tore everything up last season because we're not that far behind it, um, but we're just not quite on the same level yet, I don't think. I think as well, I think we need a game like the game at Anfield, you know, that can not make or break a season, but it can kind of kick you on having good form or it can kind of kick you around and make you try and pick up the form a bit if, you, if you're down. So I think the fact that 
we need a big game. Big if we get a big performance at Anfield, you know, you'd be talking about this differently. You've had a couple of, you know, the malaise has been there, but then they've <laughs> kicked on. So I, I think just the fact that we haven't really had, I know we played Arsenal, but I think this this sort of Anfield test is going to be a good one to see actually. Is the World Cup having an impact on the on It does the squad? feel like the first real big test of the season, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's probably most excited I've been for any games at the start of the season. I think it is the so one of the big games up with the derby now, isn't it? Excited? Are you mad? Are you <laughs> honestly? Are you mad for this? Well, like, like I said, I don't think we're favourites to go there. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a good game of football. Both teams are going to play good football. It's not. It's not going to be boring. I don't think. Honestly. Hand me a one nil defeat now, and I take it just so that we don't get a hiding. That's 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 my position on this. Oh, that's wrong news. <laughs> that's wrong. Uh, Nicola Smith is uh, is this week's final question. She's emailed in to say, uh, "Is City's dying over Jorginho costing them now with the pressure on Fernandinho?" Dan, you mentioned uh, Fernandinho's uh, thirty three. He's he's played a lot of football, um, and you know there's there's been a few iffy performances in the last couple of weeks, hasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I've been a little bit worried about Fernandinho ever since I saw him play for Brazil against Belgium in the World Cup quarterfinal. Um, and he looked a little bit rusty that, that night. And I just sort of thought to myself then, is it this going to be a season too far for him? So far, he, he's been fine, Fernandinho, this season. Um, he's had a couple of slightly iffy performances, but nothing to be too concerned about. Um, I was concerned when City didn't get another central midfielder in the summer because it was obviously a huge uh, deal for them to, to get one of these players that Guardiola only wanted two players players he only got one of them in the end so I think he made uh, it sound when he spoke to the press that he was a, a lot more comfortable with his squad than, than perhaps he, he is in truth and I've got a feeling that City might try and address that in January um, I believe that they're interested in um, a lad called Frankie de Jong who plays for Ajax um, a really talented young midfielder uh, probably going to cost a lot of money and Barcelona might have something to say about that um, but he would be a, a really good sign in, in the sort of Jorginho mould Another De Jong in midfield. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wouldn't that be brilliant? <laughs> Give him the number 34 and get him out there snapping legs as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more player they've been linked with who played against us in the Champions League for Leon a couple of weeks ago. The wonderfully named Tangi Ndombele um, is another good player that I, I think uh, City are looking at at the moment. So if they can get one of those two in January, I think it would be a, a really good uh, little boost for them mid-season. Paul, we had a chat before about uh, John Stones as, as a defensive midfielder. Could he be the answer just to take a bit of pressure off Fernandinho for a bit in, in some of the games where you would expect City to, to, to dominate the ball and not face that many counter-attacks? I don't think so. Maybe it's a short-term stopgap, but I think we'll have to see how serious Gund this Gundogan in injury is. But I mean, like Dan said, I mean, Leon and uh, Hoffenheim kind of played a, a bit on the break and there seems to be a lot of space behind, behind Fernandinho. I just don't think he's got the same sort of Running ability that he had he had done. I kind mean, of when you have to when he when you turn him round, sort of thing. I mean, we take it for granted, you know, at thirty three, he shouldn't be the only sort of you know out and out central midfield. <laughs> the only option, yeah, in that with, position, with no cover, yeah. and Gundogan should be there. Kind of the idea is probably to have Gundogan there, and then you know Jorginho, and there'd be in a phase sort of transition. But now, whoever we get is going to be kind of coming in right, you know, maybe a little bit too far in Fernandinho's career, as Dan was saying. So, yes, it is costing us now because we, you know, he would slot straight into the team. However, you know, I, I, I'm happy with the way that City approached it. You know, there was a price. They didn't want to go to that level. And I like the fact that they stuck to the guns on it. I, I just think it's um, good that we're not being taken, taken for granted. If people want to pay for, play for City, play for Pep, then they should do. It shouldn't be kind of money is the main factor. I'm sure that wasn't the only factor for Jorginho, but um, I just think the way we handled that was really good. 
Right, well, uh, let us know what you think. Tweet us at Blue Moon Podcast. Send us an email, bluemoonpodcast at gmail.com and uh, get your questions in for next week's Ask the Panel. Uh, but that's it for uh, for this week on the show. Thank you very much uh, to my two guests. Uh, all, all the way from Germany, Dan Burke. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And uh, joining me here in the studio, Paul Atherton. Cheers, mains. And uh, I've been David Mooney. If you want a little bit more Blue Moon Podcast, we're talking bogey grounds and bogey teams this week on the Patreon show. And that's available for everybody who backs $2 a month on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. You also get uh, a string of blogs by uh, myself and Richard Burns. Uh, so if you've got nothing better to do and you are a $2 a month backer, you can uh, dive in and have a read of some city stuff there as well. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast purchase new wiper blades from o'reilly auto parts today and we'll install them for free see better and drive safer with o'reilly auto parts oh 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 o'reilly auto parts